0: November has a holiday, December has a big one, but January? That's why Nitrateville invented Watch That Movie Night. Every year in the frigid wastes of January, we invite you to pick something you've been meaning to watch forever, on streaming, DVD, or 16mm, it's all good, and finally watch it. Then when you tell us how it was, you're automatically entered for a drawing sponsored by our friends at Kena Lorber. This year, we're giving away two sets with Silence by Todd Browning, Outside the Law and the double set of Drifting Plus the White Tiger. If you haven't joined Nitrateville yet, now's the perfect time to participate and have a chance to win free movies on Blu-ray or DVD. Look for Watch That Movie Night at nitrateville.com. Now on with the show.
1: It was really a, 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 you know one of those life-changing moments for me to meet him talk to him, be in his living room, sitting in it, sitting there, talking to him, seeing his his puppets in the room, his Academy Awards. Uh, It was, for me, it was uh, huge. Out of the silver
0: shadows and into the lights of movie land comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Labors of Love, that's the subject of this new year's first episode. Bruce Goldstein shows a New Yorker's love for a great New York movie, The Naked City, in a short film now playing on the Criterion channel. Then Arnold Leibovit takes us for another trip through the world of George Powell's Puppetoons, with The Puppetoon Movie Volume 2. And Tommy Jose Stathis has a new Kickstarter for some very old cartoons. But first, Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you feel like it, why not leave us a rating or a review at Apple Podcasts? Now, get ready for three of the eight million stories in the vintage film world. So what is Rialto Pictures doing these days? Very
2: little. (laughs) I mean, there's no theatrical business. And now with the winter coming, there's no drive-in business either. Uh, Luckily, we have in our catalog, I mean, drive-ins are not booking films like Grand Illusion and Panique, I'll tell you that much. (laughs) But luckily, we have in our catalog uh, the Caracol Library, which includes things like The Terminator and Evil Dead 2. So we got some uh, play out of those and drive-ins. But now, most drive-ins in the colder states, at least, are not operating or won't be soon. So we're just waiting for this pandemic thing to end like everybody in the world and resume our business
0: bruce goldstein runs rialto pictures a boutique distributor of restored and classic films as well as being the longtime repertory programmer for new york's independent and classic film theater film Forum. But with theatrical screenings on hold for now, he's turned his attention to the one way of screening movies that's thriving, streaming. He's made two films for the Criterion Channel, about movies shot on location in New York. In the footsteps of Speedy, about the making of Harold Lloyd Speedy, and his latest one, about a 1948
1: slice of the Big Apple. Ladies and gentlemen, the motion picture you are about to see is called The Naked City. My name is Mark Hellinger. I was in charge of its production. And I may as well tell you frankly that it's a bit different from most films you've ever seen. This is the city as it is. Hot summer pavements, the children at play, the buildings in
2: their naked stone, the people without makeup. The Naked City was written by two Brooklynites, the distinguished screenwriter Albert Maltz and a young World War II veteran with only a few B-movies to his credit, Malvin Wald. According to Wald's own account, it was he who first brought Hellinger the idea of an authentic New York cop movie made entirely on location.
0: That's my guest, Bruce Goldstein, in his short film, Uncovering the Naked City, now playing on the Criterion Channel. We're going to talk about the Naked City and also about how these kinds of extras get made, but let's start by talking about one of the two main people behind the movie, director Jules Dassin.
2: Well, Jules Dassin was born in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, His father was a barber. He, He was one of nine kids, I think. Very poor. And then they moved to East Harlem, which in those days was an Italian and Jewish neighborhood. It became heavily Puerto Rican beginning in the 1930s, and today it's best known as El Barrio. In fact, it has a museum, the Museo del uh, is it called Museo del Barrio, up uh, on Upper Fifth Avenue. But Jules grew up what they used to call on the other side of the tracks, because he was on the east side of Park Avenue, and Mark Hellinger grew up on the west side, the upper-middle-class upper, class, upper, upper middle class part of Park Avenue. It was Jewish and Italian, and there are vestiges of that today. With uh, uh, There's a famous restaurant there called Patsy's, which the original location is still there, things like that. Also, up at the corner of 109th Street, I think it's Lexington or maybe Madison Avenue. It's called the Stickball Hall of Fame. That corner. <laughs> and Jules told me I was very close friends with Jules Dassin in the last ten years of his life, and he told me that he was a stickball champion in East Harlem, and that corner is called the Stickball Hall of Fame. I'm surprised there's no stickball in Naked City. Actually, he was a great ba- he was a great baseball player, by the way. Dassin. Yeah, he told me a story about pitching for the MGM game. In 1948, this was the year of Take Me Out to the Ball Game, the musical at Comden and Green Road. And all the players were dressed in, like, gay 90s baseball uniforms, as in that movie, you know. Gene Kelly was on the team, of course. And Jules pitched, I don't know if he pitched a no-hitter, but he he shot out the other team. He was very proud of it. He had a very strong arm. And he says, but one thing saddened me. I said, what was that? Sitting on the bench was Buster Keaton. They wouldn't let him play. Aww. I'll never forget when he told me that. It was so sad. <laughs> yeah, but they both, they came from different sides of the track. Literally, there's an arch in ha- East Harlem. And I showed in the movie where the train the, what used to be the New York Central trains used to come above and then go underground, under Park Avenue. And on either side is, you know, the West and East. But they all, they had different experiences growing up. And that's something I tried to bring out in the short. You know, and watching the film, I realized that Jules invested it with many of the memories of his childhood. It just—I realized that he talked to me a lot about his childhood in East Harlem. And if you notice, there's a little montage where I show all the things that he recognized from his childhood: the milkman with his horse cart, and the cobbler, and the newsie, and all those people. The music I use in the background is "I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles." which he once told me was his favorite song. <laughs> so it's
0: East Harlem and not the Lower East Side that's the real heart of New York in this, in this movie?
2: East Harlem is kind of an uptown version of the Lower East Side, but it was not as, as teeming. It was not as densely populated. In 1947, there were a quarter of a million people, mostly Jews, living on the Lower East Side. This is one of the most extraordinary neighborhoods in the entire world. I can't even begin to tell you Some of the people who grew up in this neighborhood, we'll start with Irving Berlin and uh, two Oscar winners, scientists, all sorts of people. Walter Matthau. um, I I can't even begin to tell you how many people came from here. All the great Warner Brothers gangsters came from here. Uh, Edward G. Robinson grew up here. Jimmy Cagney was born nearby here. John Garfield, that kind of thing.
0: Now, you say in the film that Dasson and Hellinger are both, I mean, how would you put it,
2: consummate New Yorkers. Well, Hellinger, first of all, he came from a privileged background. His father, I think his father was a very successful lawyer. They lived in a house with servants. So he had a different viewpoint of New York City. But uh, when he went to work for the Daily News, he wanted to be a writer. I know that. I, I read a book, there's one biography of him, not very good, by Jim Bishop written in the 50s, but it tells you a little about him. He wanted to be a writer, and his columns, which are hard to find now, not like Winchell's columns, they they kind of all have an O'Henry-esque uh, twist to them at the end of them. He was originally a columnist for the New York Daily News, and then he moved over to Hearst Daily Mirror. And as I show in the short, he got both papers to lend him a location. There's a shot of a uh, composing room, I forgot how I figured out that was the Daily Mirror, and there's a shot of a loading dock, of a newspaper loading dock, and I was, oh, what could this be? And then I noticed, just as the shot ends, you could see the words, um, Harvest Moon. Well, the New York Daily News every year had this kind of, uh, big dance competition called the Harvest Moon something or other. Ed Sullivan was the host of it, so I knew that was the Daily News loading dock. Uh, on 43rd Street. But he reinvented himself as a movie producer, and he became one of the greatest of all movie producers, in my opinion. You know, starting with his first films, he doesn't get full producer credit, but, you know, like They Live By Night, with Humphrey Bogart, George Rapp, Dan Sheridan. That's one of his. And later, his own productions, Brute Force, that was the first he did with Dassen. The Killers, with Burt Lancaster, which was also shot by William Daniels. Incredible movie. One of the great film noir producers, for sure. He also, I think he also did High Sierra for Warner Brothers. Yeah,
0: it sounds like he was kind of a key figure in the sort of re up of crime movies in the 40s after the censors had kind of taken the teeth out of the gangster genre in the mid-30s.
2: Yeah, and they're very tough, his films. And, and I think he was able to get away with it because he was an independent producer. Um, he wasn't working right in the Hollywood uh, studio system at his own point of view. And his, his movies were informed by his experience as a columnist. He made a, a first, I think his first major film as the sole producer. I'm not sure about this, so I don't want letters saying you're wrong.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but uh, he produced The Roaring Twenties. Uh, 1939 with Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart, and it's based on his memories of being a columnist during the Ro- Roaring Twenties. And in fact the b- movie begins with a little prologue that he signs about this is my memories. <laughs> when you think about it, those memories are only like 15 years old, you know. now <laughs> our, our sense of time today is completely different. 15 years ago is nothing, right?
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> I think part of that, I think part of that, Mike, is that We're always surrounded by the past now. We can't escape it. In those days, the past was the past, you know.
0: So on one level, The Naked City is a cop thriller. But what's really influential about it is the verisimilitude of shooting on location. I mean, you couldn't pass off the back lot as New York City for very long after this. How do they capture
2: that feeling of the real city? Well, one way they captured it, they didn't think it was possible to do, you know... Harold Lloyd pretty much failed, not entirely failed, but in, in Speedy, 1927, he had to give up at a certain time. The crowds were overwhelming and filming on the streets was very difficult. Buster Keaton was even less successful with the cameraman. He only got a few shots. So. There had been attempts to film in New York before, and right before The Naked City, several films came in to do some scenes, and it became kind of a trend, so Lost Weekend had a great scene under the 3rd Avenue well in the pawn shops with Ray Milland, and The House on 92nd Street, that's a film that Jules said was a big influence. Another influence was Rossellini's Open City, which was filmed on the streets of Rome, but Filming a they wanted to do the entire film on location, that was very challenging. Uh, so what they how they accomplished it was by filming a lot of it silent with very lightweight equipment and just filming these little vignettes without any sound and then adding the sound later or or Hellinger's narration. And they they there's about a hundred locations or more. It really it's very, very detailed, it really captures The richness of the city and the vitality of the city their selection of what to show you know like a chinese laundry or a jewish restaurant or um a street sweeper under the arch in harlem east harlem incredible and william daniels uh designed these lightweight lights uh that they could take anywhere and just set them up and boom shoot, and, and leave. It's incredible. Uh, I say in the film that today, that uh, to make a film on location in New York would require an army of technicians and a circus caravan of location trailers, unquote. That's exactly what I say in the film. Well, just like a month ago, my wife and I were walking around the neighborhood and there was a circus caravan of location trailers on the exact same street, Rivington Street, right in front of the candy store with huge, huge, I'm talking, I mean, I don't, can't even say how big they are, but uh, what do you call them, brutes, these big lights, right? What do you call them, the, the arc lights, the brutes, they're huge, you know? Uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was filming his new Netflix musical on the streets, in the exact same streets at Naked City was 73 years ago and yet the Naked City crew was maybe 20 people at the very most there were at least a hundred technicians the location vans were up and down the the street there's a big difference
0: although as you point out the crowds did get too big for them to control them at times I mean it's kind of surprising because there wasn't really like big stars I mean the biggest name was Barry Fitzgerald
2: well they were excited to see just filmmaking on the streets which was unusual there were crowds. Some of them were paid extras, but some of them were just onlookers. When you see my short called In the Footsteps of Speedy, uh, you'll see the same thing with Harold Lloyd. You know the famous crash at the end of uh, uh, Speedy? Sure. Well, I fr- froze the frame to show you that there's like 500 onlookers looking across the street at the shooting of this, that sequence. That was always the problem shooting in New York. Harold Lloyd could take his glasses off you know, and not be recognized, but he only really got a few shots on the street as Harold Lloyd with a hidden camera. Uh, like you say, Naked City didn't have such big stars, but it was a movie shoot uh, when it, that was unusual in New York City.
0: Well, let's talk about William Daniels, who had experience with location filmmaking from working for Von Stroheim on Greed.
2: But he was best known as Garbo's cinematographer. He shot, how many films did Garber make? 26? I think he he shot 24 of her 26 movies. She insisted on him. And I say in the film, well, he seems like an unlikely choice for brute force and Naked City, unless you go back to the beginning when he was von Stroheim's, that was his first job, I think, on Greed. Again, don't send me letters, folks. I'm not checking this stuff up uh but um yeah uh, as everyone as every listener and follower of Nitrateville knows Greed was filmed on actual locations interior and exterior incredible that he you know things you really did he didn't really have to use the act, an actual dentist's office but he did same with Naked City they didn't have to use the real morgue at, at Bellevue Hospital, but they did. They wanted that level of verisimilitude. Oh, good, I said it properly, I hope.
0: <laughs> yeah, we may both
2: get letters. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, that he used those light boxes.
2: Well, there's a good reason for those, uh, that Daniels wanted that. It's that in those days, it, there was not a lot of production in New York, and we didn't have the. Uh, motion picture supply houses we have now. You couldn't just, you know, nowadays you could say, I need two brutes for Lin-Manuel Miranda, send them over to Rivington Street. They had a, that equipment had to come from the coast and it took too long. So he designed this simple rig, which could use these light bulbs, these photo lamps, that you could buy in any hardware store for five each. It was very ingenious, actually. It's amazing when you look at the, the production stills that he got that much light out of them.
0: But they also have the effect of giving you multiple sources of light, which is different from the chiaroscuro look of noir lighting.
2: Absolutely, and it gives it a documentary look, for sure. I want to say one thing about William Daniels, though. Why was he the DP? Well, one, he had worked with uh, Dasson and Hellinger on brute force, of course. And actually, he had worked with Dassin when Dassin was an MGM contract director uh, on the Canterville Ghost with Charles Lawton and Margaret O'Brien.
0: Which is also on Criterion Channel right now. It is? Yeah.
2: <laughs> the Canterville Ghost? Well, that's interesting. It's not, he, he disowned his entire MGM period, by the way. He was just a contract director and he had very little control of the finished product. Um, but. Jules was a fanatical Garbo fan. He adored Greta Garbo. Uh, I visited him in Athens twice. And in his den, he had all of Garbo's VHS uh, films on VHS. He also had like the MGM LP with the you know, they used to have these LPs with before we had VHS, we had, before home video, you could buy LPs and they would have, you know, lines of dialogue. <laughs> Remember those? I don't know if you... Um, he loved Garbo so much. It was She was the beginning and end of cinema for him. And he enjoyed being with William Daniels for just that reason. By the way, I did several interviews with Jules Dassin. And one is online, uh, the Directors Guild asked me to do an oral history with him. And you can hear that online. He talks a lot about William Daniels and what a kind and gentle man he was. He had had, he had, had a rough time for the previous 20 years. He, had, he was a drinker, and he, you know Hellinger gave him another shot. And he had a big renaissance. He kept working uh, till he died after this.
0: Well, let's talk about how this film came about. Did you get the idea around the time that they were planning to put Naked City out on Blu-ray?
2: No, it had nothing to do with the Blu-ray and DVD. Ironically, I don't really know how it came about. I, I'm trying to figure out, but uh, there's a, ex, you know, one of the, I, she's not a producer, she's the executive pro- Her name is Kim Hendrickson at Criterion. We're friends. And I did this piece on spe- actually, I've done two pieces for for Criterion. i Sue Lloyd asked me to do the uh, speedy piece, and I did it, and I did it. uh, (laughs) It was much more elaborate than I had planned, but once I started researching it, I couldn't stop, and you'll see when you you see that. Um, And then I did a piece on subtitling. I also do a lot with subtitling for my company, Rialto Pictures. It's called The Art of Subtitling, and it's on the Panique uh, Blu-ray. And by the way, Panique is a wonderful film noir, French film noir, by Julien Duvivier, who was a great silent director as well, by the way. Kind of the, uh, one of the two French Hitchcocks. I would say he and Clouseau were the French Hitchcocks.
0: Yeah, Panique is
2: excellent. It's great. I I put it out, uh, we... we, we first wanted to do it like 20 years ago there were no elements to make a restoration and finally after 20 years we were able to release it in theaters and then put out the blu-ray with criterion so i said i'd like to do a piece on subtitles it's called the art of subtitling so i've done three films and kim asked me would you like to do something for the channel i said okay what would you like to do maybe i'll like to do something on the naked city. it was that it was that casual. so i did it. but the blu-ray was already out. so however i am on the blu-ray, there's an old interview i did with Jules Dassin at the uh, the LA County Museum uh is on the blu-ray. it's from the, like 20 years ago or more.
0: So with Criterion, do you give them an outline? Do you give them a script? How's it
2: work? No, I just did it. I just went out and did it. It was my pandemic project. I mean, we. I mean, I did this. When you watch the short, you hardly see anybody. You you may spot a few people with masks, but there are so few people on the streets. It made filming relatively easy. You know. I don't know if you notice that all the times I'm on camera, I'm in front of a location that's in the movie. There was one mistake. I don't know if you caught that.
0: Yeah, I would not have. But uh, (laughs) it's fun that you know what the locations look like now. A lot of them have not changed, though the Lower East Side is all different.
2: Well, yeah, my neighborhood. uh, They wiped out uh, the the, um, southern part of Delancey Street. It's just so vivid in the movie, and you could see it was such a vibrant neighborhood. They just destroyed it, and they didn't rebuild it for fifty years. They were supposed to, but they didn't. Only like five years ago did they start building on that on that strip of uh, neighborhood.
0: Yeah, we've had that kind of neighborhood obliteration through urban planning in Chicago. Oh yeah,
2: I'm I'm getting very interested in that subject, by the way. <laughs> No, I mean, in, in the public housing and how they destroyed neighborhoods, you know, the Lincoln Center uh, here was an old neighborhood, which you could see at the beginning of West Side Story. They, they used the derelict buildings for the sets, and then they tore it down to make Lincoln Center. The U.N. is well, the U.N where the U.N. now, maybe we didn't need to save. it was where all the slaughterhouses were in New York, you know, so that kind of thing.
0: So why did you want to make this film about this particular film?
2: Well, I did it as partly as an homage to Jules, who I really loved, and I, I, I made. There's a dedication at the end of the film to Jules Dassin and my father, who grew up on the Lower East Side, and everyone who did grow up on the Lower East Side, it never left them. Uh, I was told the same thing about Walter Matthau. You know, he lived in Beverly Hills, but he the Lower East Side never left him. That's not only about the lower side, of course, but it plays a major part in it. By the way, my uh, I had a coach who worked with me, uh, and her name is Sandra Lee. I don't know if that name is familiar, but but um, she was Tiger Lily and Peter Pan with Mary Martin, <laughs> and, she, and she's ninety, and she's coached people like Jane Fonda and. All sorts of people. But she worked for Stella Adler as, as, a, as an acting teacher for 20 years. And ironically, Stella Adler's half-sister, Celia Adler, plays the candy store lady. How's that for Arcana?
0: Well, New York is a small town. It's Well, yeah,
2: in some ways it is,
0: actually. All right, well, thank you for talking with us about this. Okay, Mike. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, and someday I'll come back to New York.
2: Well, if you do, I'm here. Hey, uh, I want. Can I ch- just tell you about two people who worked with me on the short? Sure. I don't know if you can add this. If not, but uh, you know, unlocking some of the locations was the big challenge, and there were a lot. We well, there are very little tools at our disposal right now with all the archives closed. In fact, the production manager's papers are at USC, but we had no access to it because the archives are closed because of the pandemic. So all the locations that we uh, you know, unlocked are due to uh, detective work. And the tools we had at our disposal were things like the New York Public Library has the 1946 Manhattan White Pages online. That was and and the uh, New York City Municipal Archives has the tax photographs of every building in New York City in 1940 online. That was a great help. Stanley Kubrick's photographs are online that he shot on the set, as are Ouija's. So these are things we use. But I had with my editor, William Holhauser, is also a New York buff like me, and he's a great expert on the subway. And he somehow was able to figure out that the interior subway was at Lexington and 110th Street. And I went up there and I said, it sure is. Bingo, bingo. Also working with me as a research assistant was Shane Fleming. Uh, I don't know if you know his name, but he's 17. And hes I think he's the number one teenage silent movie expert in the world. You should know about him.
0: Yeah, Ben Modell was telling me about him.
2: Yeah, well, Shane, I've known since he was nine because he came to my uh, children's matinees at Film Forum. And a big Chaplin fan, he came to every silent movie and we got him on tcm we got him an interview with robert osborne at nine talking about charlie and buster keaton so and shane is also a new york city expert i mean he really knows a lot about the history of the city and the subway so it was a great team to be working with
1: There are 8 million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them.
0: Links for Uncovering the Naked City and In the Footsteps of Speedy will be in the show post at nitrateville.com for Criterion Channel subscribers. Before cartoons were big business from corporations like Disney and Warner Bros., they were a niche part of silent film that bordered on surrealism, Animation scholar Tommy Jose Stathis collects these often-overlooked cartoons and just announced a new Kickstarter to make a group of them available, focusing on shorts made at the Bray Studio by a young man named Walter Lance, who would go on to create Woody Woodpecker, Andy Panda, and other characters. The Kickstarter, Cartoon Roots, Dinky and Company, is active now, and I asked New York-based Stathis to tell us about it.
3: Well, this Kickstarter that's currently running, I uh, started this a few days ago last week, and this is designed to fund a new restoration project, restoring um a group of early Walter Lance films produced in the mostly in the mid twenties. They were um bray Studios productions uh Bray being one of the first and foremost animation production companies, one that was really organized as a studio. And Walter Lance, who uh, most people know as being the um, producer of Woody Woodpecker cartoons and that sort of thing, he started in the animation business in the late teens as a young man, and he worked his way up to being a director of Brace Studio. So at that studio, he produced dozens of these really elaborate, really creative um, combination animation and live-action silent shorts. He appears in all of them as a young man. He's an actor in them as well. Um, so I've been uh, collecting and archiving a lot of these films for the past 15-plus years um, as part of my overall focus in um, silent animation. And uh, it's time, I think, to bring more of them out. Uh, they've been very rare, very obscured over the years. And I think they are the next project that I want to work on and put back out there for people to enjoy. So that's what we're in the middle of right now, the funding right. period.
0: Yeah. yeah. And it's, I see it's, it's up past the two thirds mark. So that's pretty good. Yeah.
3: I think only four days in or something. Like
0: yeah. That. Yeah. <laughs> 148 backers is what I'm seeing right now. Um, So, now, silent animation, I mean, sound animation tends to be held on pretty tightly by the companies that still leverage uh, those characters to make Mm -hmm. money and sell plush toys and get people to amusement parks and all that stuff. Uh, Silent cartoons are a whole different thing where they really don't have... Uh, a lot of legacy owners and things like that. So tell me about the state of silent cartoons in terms of preservation. Yeah. Like you that. brought up a good point
3: in, uh, in comparing it with sound animation because I think that that's true, but only to an extent. Um, you have the really, really big top-tier studios. Um, I mean, a lot of uh, sound-era characters, you know, they're still trademarked, they're still um, controlled or owned to some extent but it's really only the top tier stuff that's still actively um, used in any way. There are a lot of things that people still know about and still like but they're just not being actively used in any way and the silent animation is very different because in my opinion um, animation has somewhat more of a timelessness with audiences of different generations, more so than live-action films have. And the irony is that even though that may be true, um, the, a lot of the silent animation suffered from this simple mindset that um, you know, these films are old, they're not sound, they're not color, uh, nobody cares about them, they're not going to make us any money. So once you roll around to the 1930s, 1940s, um, even if the producers are still around, they're just not doing anything to um, market those characters anymore, market the films much anymore, with some slight exceptions like um, film library rentals or uh, TV distribution. There was some limited reuse of the films like that, but it, w- it really was viewed as um, uh, it's just taking up space on the shelf or paying money to store it, and it's not worth it. So... Is nothing to do, to do here to look at here, and uh, that's why so much of it has been lost or neglected over the years.
0: Yeah. Now I remember when I was booking sixteen millimeter films in college. I mean, yeah. there were there were certainly ones that you could get, and they went over. The good ones went over really well which is kind of a tautology i realize but uh you know a good coco cartoon or a good felix cartoon was so bizarre compared to later cartoons that audiences were usually delighted by them um and you could get them from you know the budget film library or whoever mg people like that um where do, how do you feel about the, these Walter Lance cartoons? You know, in relation to that kind of audience reaction. Um,
3: I would say, in in my experience in showing them to audiences, the reaction is usually pretty strong and positive because they have um, some pretty surreal things going on in them, effects-wise. Even if the stories are not totally surreal. the effects are the the. Um, the compositing of the live action and the animation. And there's sort of a um, you know, sort of a Max Fleischer feel. They have similarities with the Coco films. Um, there have always been a small handful of these in continual distribution through those companies, like you mentioned, Budget and uh, MG and, and so forth. And um, so a few of them have always floated around, and they've been pretty well-liked, but uh, for as much as they have had positive response through the decades, for one reason or another, um, they've otherwise been pretty obscured and pretty neglected. So, in terms of contemporary viewings, I still see people really
0: enjoying that, which is pretty cool. Now, how did you get into them, that this became such a focus for you?
3: It's been... Um, I'd say part and parcel of an overall uh, interest or goal. Uh, I had also seen a couple of them from a very young age in in some of those um, I guess early VHS releases, retrospectives of silent animation that were put out in the 80s and 90s. So I, I got to see a couple of them like that over the years. and. Um, in, in my own archiving and researching of silent animation, they've been a very um prominent group of films to me. They are the first films that were directed by a famous animator that a lot of people have admired and respected. Um it's ironic that these films have been that neglected as a as a as a result of Walter Lance's fame. Um I have always had an eye out for them. I know kind of when and where they were distributed again and again. So I kind of knew what kinds of prints to look for, where I might expect them to turn up. And thankfully, um, I've been able to find a good deal of them. So we're, we're sort of at the point of almost reuniting most of that body of works. But some of the prints are incomplete. Some of them are still missing entirely. And this is, I think, an important first step in getting a big bunch of them restored and maybe getting some more prints to turn up as a result of that.
0: Yeah. Well, tell me about, uh, I mean, what's the condition of what you find on the collector market? And tell me about the the restoration process for those. Uh,
3: Good question. We... We turn up prints that range from really beaten up, manhandled, incomplete um, 16 millimeter prints. These films specifically, sometimes it's um, rental prints that were made for the home use market in the 30s and 40s. And there were also a, um, a group of them that were reprinted for television by the Brace Studios in the 50s. So sometimes those prints turn up too, and those can be pretty nice. Sometimes they're very nice and sharp and complete. Um, in some cases, uh, the Brace Studios, they also cut into titles out of them. They added narration for kiddie shows on TV, and um, they replaced the main titles. So sometimes the films turn up in very... Nice-looking prints, but they have these um, uh, original elements that have been taking it, taken out of them. So I have a, a variety of different 16-millimeter prints like that. I've also got um, a bunch of 35-millimeter prints because these films were also very popular in France. And I think in France, it seems that the, um, the traveling showman... That were around in that country in the 20s and 30s were very fond of these films and a lot of other American shorts. Um, it's this story of uh, Charlie Bowers films that many of us are familiar with. They turned up in France a lot of them, and there are uh, sometimes these safety prints in 35 millimeter that were made for these traveling showmen, and they turn up there. I've been able to find some of those, so that's that's really nice to be able to find these. Rare Elise shorts in, um, in 35 prints. That's uncommon for this stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's a full, a full range of stuff, really beaten up sometimes incomplete 16 prints. Sometimes these really gorgeous looking French 35 millimeter prints. Those obviously don't have English titles or anything, but a real motley crew stuff. And, um, uh, it's certainly a challenge reconstructing some of them. that's for sure
0: yeah, so you're just creating titles based on what the narration says now, and that's your best indication of what the titles would have been or or how's that Yes work? and no
3: yes and no I'll say uh, I'll say yes because um, a really unusual situation here where there uh, there were a number of studio files that the Bray Studios kept and still exist. And I was able to access and copy a lot of that, where for their um, television package, they they made notes on some of the films where intertitles were cut out. They made a list of what the intertitles said, which was really nice. Um, sometimes, Sometimes I will not replace or fake certain things. If I'm not certain that that's what it would have originally said or looked like, Um, generally speaking, I avoid not always, but I generally avoid recreating title cards to look original. If I don't know that they didn't really look like that, I would rather have a generic introduction and not say fake something Um, in, in a restoration quote unquote, I don't want to put too much in there that might not really be accurate or faithful to the original. so it's a it's a mix. Sometimes in these restorations, I will present a um, a TV print with newer title cards, just as is because I have no indication of what the original would have looked like, and this is as good as it's gonna get in my opinion.
0: Well, let's talk about the character, Dinky Doodle and his dog, Heart, which is mm-hmm. obviously a play on Strongheart, who was one of the dog heroes of that time. Right. Um, so what is what kind of a character is Dinky Doodle?
3: Dinky Doodle is, I would say, an adventurous, and maybe sometimes a little bit of a, a mischievous little boy. This is a recurring theme. and uh, Maybe you could call it a, a trope in a lot of... Silent animation. There's always a little boy character and his little sidekick dog. And um, there was uh, probably just a tradition of doing this sort of duo in, in silent animation. This is Lance's breakout in a directorial capacity. So I wouldn't say that the the character itself of the two characters themselves are um, incredibly dynamic personality wise, but they, they, they do interesting things. They're kind of fun. They're kind of cute on the surface. And I think that was their popularity. The, the, the initial cuteness of just what they look like and the the surrealness of the films themselves as a, a totality. So nothing, nothing too otherworldly as far as the, the characters go individually, if that makes sense.
0: All right, and so there'll be how many shorts on the uh, the set here?
3: That would be fifteen shorts. Fifteen and shorts. It's going, Yeah, it's going to be uh, a mixture of these dinky doodle shorts and a few from two of the other series that Lance made during this period. One of them was called. Unnatural History cartoons, and these were um, sort of farcical, ridiculous explanations of why certain, let's say, animals have certain physical features. Let's make a whole ridiculous fable out of it. Um, And another series was called Hot Dog Cartoons, and the star of that is called Pete the Pup. And another cute-looking dog character in similar kinds of adventures. And all these films have Walter Lance acting
0: in them. I I don't remember. I mean, I have the first Cartoon Roots set that had Bray films on it, but uh, I don't remember what the musical accompaniment was offhand. What do you do for that?
3: It varies. Um, It depends on the project. Sometimes, on a couple of occasions, um, we've included soundtracks that were added to these films a very long time ago uh for instance i think it was the pied piper that's a dinky doodle cartoon that was in the uh bray studios volume of the cartoon series that had a soundtrack um uh sound effects and musical score track that was uh, created for it in the 30s we left that intact there and that's usually those are pretty charming sometimes those tracks Sometimes I'll leave things like that alone. Um, sometimes if they seem pleasant enough, I will leave the um, musical tracks that were created for TV distribution. In other instances, I will have an accompanist to create a new um, piano score or something like that. So that varies. So We'll probably have... A variety of, of scores and tracks like that in this collection as well.
0: You uh, you have some rather alarming picture of nitrate decomposition on the Kickstarter, <laughs> but uh, the ones you have are in good shape and they generally and they they take well to two K transfer.
3: Yeah, the two K is usually as 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 much as we need in terms of resolution. Right. And they're, they're probably they're some... just ink
0: ink drawings. They're lines, so yeah, and.
3: With these, I mean, with the with these Walter Lance films, we do have, um, we do have a lot of live action footage. But the the fact of the matter is, if we're not dealing with something like a camera negative or some really really superior, uh, thirty five element, it kind of just doesn't make sense to do anything more than a two K scan. Um, you're not you're not going to get anything more out of let's say a 16 millimeter print if you scan it in 4K. So that's usually completely sufficient. And um, thankfully, none of the films in this project are suffering from anything like nitrate decay. But I, I put some images like that there to show that um, if we have visual condition problems, we can sometimes correct them we can um, sometimes we loop footage because the animation is done on cycles so we're able to eliminate damage by simply looping a cycle that was not damaged um, and we still have the same action the same film which is really cool um, so you asked earlier about the restoration process so I guess I should talk a little bit about that uh, we go from a 2k scan to a pretty simple workflow of steadying the film shot by shot, trying to eliminate any jitter that might be in the picture. Um, This usually makes it a little easier to watch for most audiences, but it also uh, also helps us in another way because it makes the process of uh, dust busting and dirt cleanup and the automatic processes, a lot easier. And the computer is—that's the next step after studying. It's the uh, the cleanup, the dust busting. Um, the computer does a lot of that automatically. You set certain parameters, and it um, what's the word I want? It analyzes the film from frame to frame, and it um, it determines you know what's a dust spec what's a little scratch and it eliminates that. So if the picture's really steady, the computer has a better chance of properly detecting something that's damage or wear or dust and getting rid of that. So we go from uh, scanning to steadying to uh, dirt cleanup. Um, Sometimes before we get to the steadying, I do a, uh, a basic edit on the film if we do need to loop footage or anything like that, because I personally don't do the steadying or the, the dust busting. I, I have other colleagues do those things, but I want to get a good solid edit in there at first, and then they can take it away. Um, after, after that, um, well, while the other restoration processes are going on, uh, the film is usually handed off to somebody if they need to score it, so that can be done simultaneously. Then, after the dirt cleanup, I would say it's uh, it's just a matter of marrying that to a new score if one is being made, and um, sometimes tinting the film, uh, doing last minute. A contrast work, tweaking like that. And it's a pretty simple, I think pretty straightforward process. It takes time and it's um, it's it takes expertise for sure, but it's nothing, let's say it's nothing on the level of a Disney restoration, let's put it like that.
0: So what do you hope people take away from seeing these for the first time after so many years?
3: I would like people to Um, first of all enjoy themselves that's my main that's my first goal in doing any of this work that I do with these films I I hope people are entertained by the film that's first and foremost but after that um, I hope to have people uh, gain a more well-rounded appreciation for or awareness of just the kinds of films that were being made and, and the, the technical ingenuity that went into them before animation became as popular and as profitable as it did as a business, as a an entertainment form through things like Mickey Mouse and through things like Technicolor and feature films and all of the advancements that came uh, into the 1930s and beyond there were a lot of really creative minds behind these little short five, six, seven minute films. And um, they're still entertaining to a lot of people today and they serve as the foundation of what came later. So it's been, it's always been very frustrating to me that that's been overlooked and sort of neglected and um, the films have been, Kept away, and that has prevented a lot of, uh, of research and enthusiasm, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Right. You can't research it if you don't know about it. No. that's.
3: I mean, I'm really grateful to all of the, the historians that have written about this stuff for the past 30, 40, almost 50 years now. But um, to, to think that these films have been sitting around here and there in, in you know, barns and attics and uh, film vaults here and there, and you know, people are writing dissertations on, on film history or animation history, but the films are not actually viewable to most people. It It makes no sense to me, and that's sort of the underpinning of everything I do, that I've always wanted to fix that problem.
0: A link for the Cartoon Roots Dinky Doodle and Company Kickstarter will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Attention
1: all batteries. Prepare for volley fire. Beep. Prepare for volley fire. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over, and I will dwell
0: in the house of the Lord forever." (laughs) Suppose Walt Disney had such a success, with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, that we all kind of forgot he started with cartoons. That's something of the situation with George Pal, remembered as the father of the science fiction and fantasy genre, with War of the Worlds, The Time Machine, The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau, and more. Those successes overshadowed the 20-some years and seven Oscar nominations plus one special Oscar that he saw as the creator of the stop-motion animated Puppetoon shorts. Arnold Leibovit made a documentary, The Fantasy Worlds of George Pal, in 1985, and a compilation film of Puppetoons, The Puppetoon Movie, in 1987. Now he's released more Puppetoons in eye-popping Technicolor, in The Puppetoon Movie volume 2, available only at puppetoon.net. I spoke with him from his home in Arizona.
1: Like a lot of fans of uh, science fiction and and fantasy, I was a matinee kid. Uh, It was not unusual for me to to catch a lot of those films as a kid. And one of them, of course, uh, was The Time Machine. Uh, And I was nine years old. And, um, I was living in Miami, Miami beach. Actually, it was a revelation when I saw it, there was no doubt about it. Uh, it's, uh, it was such an impressive film. Uh, and I, I think that film marked a a change in my definitely got to know who George Powell was after the time machine. Uh, when war of the worlds came out in 1953. I was only three years old and I remember my, uh, my grandmother and my mother, no, it was my grandmother and my brother coming home one day. And, uh, I was very young still. I don't remember very much, but I remember they were scared to death, (laughs) you know? And I think that uh, war of the Worlds has had a history of scaring people, uh, going back to Orson Welles. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think they tried to do it. I think the film succeeded very well. Um, in uh scaring the hell out of people and uh it, it was really a well-produced film so so that's sort of how i got to you know kind of got to know pal was and i kind of went through the years you know kind sort of staying up on a number of his films it wasn't just pal of course for me ray harryhausen seventh voyage of sinbad um uh, walt disney naturally um i was a big fan of uh disney films uh sleeping beauty in particular was a spectacle and um and cecil b DeMille, the ten commandments uh there were a few films that were kind of landmark films for me and um it was interesting is as i got older and i finally got to meet pal which i'll talk about uh it seems like all the people that i was uh, growing up interested in all knew pal were friends with pal worked with pal helped him or he helped them, uh, including Walt Disney. who he his friends with Susie B. DeMille who helped him with uh, war of the worlds. And when worlds collide at Paramount, uh, Ray Harryhausen, who got his first job working for George doing puppet tunes. When he was 18 years old, the first thing he did was a puppet puppetoons for George. It's like everything I was interested in all melded into one thing. And so it became George Pal. Uh, and that, I thought, was the real miraculous part of the story. Uh, how his uh, life, the ripple effect of George, how it affected so many people in the industry. And, uh, and I just thought that was uh, really remarkable. Um, it seems
0: like his films are cut above most of the science fiction films in terms of the stylishness of the design. And to some degree, the acting and writing is better than it usually is in those kinds of things in the 50s. I think that's part of why he laughs and his films are an example of how to do it well. I agree. They're not just for laughs these days.
1: No, that's true. They they do stand apart. Um, and he had good scripts. Uh, George was smart. I mean, he was a, a smart cookie. I mean, he grew up in... uh was born in Hungary, in Seglet, Hungary, 1908. Um, uh, I would say he was a prodigy. He was a child prodigy. I mean, he was... Uh, he, he immediately... Uh, very talented guy he studied to be an architect at the budapest academy of arts uh, and um, and he became he knew how to draw he was a draftsman there was nothing to build he said there was a slump going on at the time so he became a cartoonist and he started to do drawings and cartoons but he picked these things up very very naturally like i said he was a bit of a prodigy and eventually he became a an animator and, um, and it wasn't long before he moved to Germany uh, with his wife, and uh, Mrs. Powell, uh, and became the head of the animation department of UFA. And he was only 21 years old at the time. He kind of had a natural inclination for animation, for special effects, for doing things different, things that nobody had done before. He grew up on the fairy tale um he uh, he loved science fiction as a kid. I mean he, he read the books of the day, certainly Jules Verne and HD Wells and and he was from Europe and um, I think he was pretty smart and uh, and storytelling uh, came naturally to him. Uh, he said he, he was born into an actor's family actually, but he said he didn't want to have anything to do, do with the stage. So that's why he became an architect. But as I say, the stage found him. Yeah, because uh, he was he was a natural born showman, and he knew and understood the natural intrinsics of dramatic arts and uh, storytelling, and that uh, translates, as you say, later on in his films, because they just aren't ordinary science fiction fantasy films. They have real quality to them. They're, the acting is better. The storytelling is better. Uh, there's uh there's, there's a there's a heart there's an element of heart to the stories um, there's sort of a natural sense of awe that I like to call it uh, and a boyhood wonder that that encompasses these films of his when you see them at least what I did as a kid you know there was like your mouth is open you know you're kind of it's kind of like an inspiration it's revelational to you you're seeing something that is very different than what you are accustomed to seeing. And, uh, and also he had a wonderful sense of humor. Uh, George had a wonderful sense of life and, uh, and the intricacies of those elements and those play a role in the, in the stories as well. George's contribution aside from being the animating, uh, influence, the pioneer of animation was he's known as the father of science fiction and fantasy in modern film. And he really is the one that, you know, brought science fiction and fantasy movies to, um, made it it's for a mass audience that had not been done before uh, you know, with War of the Worlds. These were big productions, and he did them on an epic scale in Technicolor and big sets. And so uh, he had uh, great influence to do the films, like you said earlier. Uh, they set, they're set apart from a lot of the t- other types of films you saw during that Period, uh, and uh, he really was the the George Lucas, Steven Spielberg of his day. Uh, so it's a combination of those things.
0: Like you say, there's a real sense of life in the way the characters are designed and animated. How did he arrive at that style of stop motion animation?
1: Well, it's it's, it's this, as the story goes. He was doing uh, cell animation, and uh, he said he was so bored drawing cell. Uh, cells that uh, he, he, was at the, the way he was playing with some cigarettes is what he was doing. He was a bit of a smoker back then. And he, the, I guess the light bulb went off one day. He was kind of playing with a cigarette in his hand and he started moving it. And Mrs. Powell told me he, she thought that's the day that he recognized the idea that maybe he could use actual three-dimensional objects and move them. And so he called up the sponsor. He was doing a, a commercial about cigarettes, which was drawn animation. And he, he was so bored. He said, what if you think he, if I use your own cigarettes? <laughs> You'll see the trademark on every cigarette. And the, and, the, and the sponsor loved the idea. So he started to just move cigarettes to music. And he wasn't the first one to do three-dimensional, but he did it in a very stylized way. By coming up with this uh, really almost insane uh, cra- uh, uh, time, was taking hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, of carved and and wood lathe puppets and replacing them every frame of film, different heads, different legs, different eyeballs, different you know everything, and that was his style. That's what the puppetoons became, and that's what gives them this incredible stylization. And, and look and feel that you don't see in other forms of stop motion. So that's, that was his big contribution, I think. was the, It's called the series puppet or the replacement figure puppet. And uh, when you look at it today, you, you can't even imagine that they're made of wood. Yeah. And they're moving like they are. It's, uh, it's, it's incredible craftsmanship by amazing craft people who did it, who did the work. He set up the biggest dimensional cartoon studio in Europe in, in Hindhoven, Holland uh he was sponsored by the phillips company and he uh, spent seven or eight years making these amazing commercial story films so uh they were they were started out to be just commercials but uh, george was so good at it that the sponsors just let him tell stories so they'll have like three seconds of the name of a product barely but the rest of it is just basically a story yeah and and they played in movie theaters just like commercials play on television today and they were a big big hit so much so that George was called the Walt Disney of Europe, and uh, and he got a big reputation worldwide, and including Walt Disney himself, which is where he met him and became lifelong friends. And Pal influenced Walt in his animation as many of the Disney animators. And then when he came to America to make puppetoons in the United States to do the Paramount puppetoons disney animators worked with george at the Puppetoon studios uh and a few notable ones in the Puppetoon movies both the original i did and the volume two that's out now it's come out uh there's a couple of characters called punchy and judy which were actually designed by fred moore uh who's one of the top greatest character animators at disney who who's most famous for um designing and creating the seven dwarves i mean the dwarves those are his designs it's probably the greatest some of the greatest design ideas in animation and fred also did um uh mickey mouse the the look the mickey mouse we all love which is the mickey mouse from fantasia and the sorcerer's apprentice that look of mickey which is the best the best of the mickeys in my opinion uh, came from fred moore and he did many many other characters so Fred uh so Disney has an influence in the puppet tunes and they're in this set which is wonderful. Um uh, so those are that's one one aspect of it. And uh So how did you get to know him? Well, I didn't know him well, but I met him and uh I was doing a film uh a science fiction uh kind of a jaws on land's story I wrote. Um and uh, was trying to get it made. And uh, one of my friends at the time was Dan O'Bannon, who uh, who wrote Alien. And uh, Dan uh, Dan was working hard to get the film Alien made himself. And um, he he uh, he introduced me to Ron Cobb, who did the designs for Alien, and Ron did designs for my film. It was really great. He recently passed away. Uh, Cobb. He was one of the great. Uh, uh, artists, uh, conceptualists, uh, conceptual artists, and uh, anyway, uh, uh, Dan said, uh, you know, you should take this to George Powell. and uh, and I, I wasn't following Pal at that point. I didn't know he was even still around, actually, and uh, and anyway, uh, I think was, uh, Dan uh, or through it was either Dan or Jim Danforth who did animation for George on many of his features. I think uh, got me connected to George and I met with him at his um, his house in Beverly Hills and uh, brought the project to him and it was really a a, a, you know one of those life-changing moments for me to meet him talk to him be in his living room sitting in it sitting there talking to him seeing his, his, his puppets in the room his Academy Awards uh, it was for me. It was uh, huge. I was twenty. I was twenty-seven at the time, and uh, I stayed in touch with him for about a year or so, and uh, offered me advice and things of that sort. But he passed away. He, he had a heart attack. Uh, uh, you know, within that that period, a year and a half later. Or so then I became friends with Mrs. Powell. After that, I told her, uh, you know, we really should do something for George, a tribute. Nothing was done at that time. And I thought it would be a good idea and stayed in touch with her for several years. Actually, it wasn't until four years later, I came out to LA and started working and making the fantasy film worlds of George Powell, which is the seminal film documentary on his life. And, uh, so that, so obviously he had a great impact on me. Um, Mrs. Powell was incredibly helpful, uh, and um, and the whole experience was incredible because that's when I learned of the influence of George had in the industry, and all the interconnecting parts of every single person, and the ripple effects of writers and directors and artists, people of all walks of life who were influenced by George on his movies and special effects and uh, the Star Wars or Close Encounters or whatever. I mean, every film that in our period, and now, of course, is Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson, who's a huge fan of stop-motion animation of Ray Harryhausen in particular, uh, James Cameron, who did Terminator, is a big fan of The Time Machine, uh, and uh, so many of these people. I know Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek was a close friend of George and influenced uh, George was his mentor in the making of Star Trek even astronauts uh, Buzz Aldrin I spoke to and Neil Armstrong uh, partially and uh, people that saw destination moon when they were kids which is 1950 movie they were they got interested in rocketry because of George. Uh, because he predated going to the moon by 25 years before we actually landed a man on the moon. He made a film, which is, you know, almost identical to when Neil Armstrong landed. He act, there's actually a line in Destination Moon that says we, we, take the, we take the possession of the moon for all mankind. That line is actually in Destination Moon. So uh, there's a lot of things. You know, so, there's so many wonderful um, uh, stories. Of how uh, George his influence was so great.
0: So you made the documentary about his career, and then the first puppetoon movie in 1987. So I guess more of his work has become available in the years since.
1: Yeah, when I first started, uh, uh, I was doing, uh, I was working on the, I was working on the documentary on the on the fantasy film worlds. We had a big showing at the Academy, and it was really went over very well. But even though before then, I was in. Uh, the house with Mrs. Powell and going through some of George's artifacts and things and there was a box in the closet and uh, I asked her what it was and she said there were some films. There were 16 millimeter films that George used to when he would do a, a talk or something. I said well can we look at these because she didn't know what they were. So she had a projector in the house It was a 16 millimeter Bell and Howell projector and I was as a kid, I used to show movies to my friends on 16 millimeter projectors. It's just one of the crazy things that I did. Yeah, um, you know, <laughs> I resemble collector. that remark. Oh, okay. You know, we I was the, one of those crazy people, right? And I would get films and I'd show my friends. I thought most people thought I was crazy, of course. And uh, but I I was showing feature films in my house. Any case, uh, I knew how to thread the projector, so I took one of the films and threaded it up, and it. It turned out to be Tubby the tuba.
3: First, the oboe gave his A to the strings, to the woodwinds, to the brass. Up and around the scales they raced, helter-skelter, faster and faster. Oh,
1: but Tubby the tuba. A fat little tuba. Away. And it was the first time I'd ever seen it in color. It was a 16 millimeter print of it. I'd only seen it in black and white in these terrible prints that they showed on television. Anyway, I was so taken by it, the music and the, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. And I told Joka, I said, uh, we've got to, you know, we got to, are you doing anything with these? We've got to preserve these films. And that was the beginning of how I started doing the puppetoon movie, um, and then I got access to a lot of the nitrate prints that, that she had and from other places. And that's how I put that film together. And But over the years, I um, I have wanted to do other films, but they weren't really available. Uh, the quality wasn't there. There were rights issues with the subjects that I was trying to get from different Pry from various libraries, because Paramount didn't have them at that point. They were at uh, other other libraries, NTA and... Republic Pictures, and none of none of them would be were willing to work with me to to do anything. So that was that's like a 35-year journey. I mean, over the, all these decades, you know, oh, I'd say over the past, uh, you know, say 10 years or so, a lot of films started turning up from Europe. That's what really started because I was looking for a lot of these European films. Uh, I have read about them from from works that were written when George was in uh, Holland, but I'd never seen a lot of these films. And then they suddenly, some of these archives started uh, finding them. And that's what started the, the volume two, was the idea that I could actually uh, maybe get some of these European films. I didn't think I was going to be able to get the Paramount puppetoons at the time. Uh, and then that's what happened. I, uh, the first I got these films, which were amazing. They was like un, unseen, no one's seen these things. Um, and uh, Alibaba, and the Forty Thieves, was an incredible find; hadn't been seen since 1934, and that's on Puppetoon Volume Two. Uh, and then a number of the Horlicks films that hadn't been seen, and I got them in beautiful condition from the uh, British Film Institute. Had a few, and I'm, I'm still planning to get more for Volume Three, hopefully. And uh, and then I think it was I wanted to get more of the Paramounts. We had gotten a few of them for volume, the last volume, the Blu-ray, but they weren't restored as quite as well as we did on these uh, because many of these came from the original successive negatives from Paramount. And uh, I was after Paramount for a long time, uh, even when when they finally bought the Republic Library and it went back to them after all those years. And then they got the films, but they didn't really know what they were. They didn't really care, you know. And so I was after him, and I was doing uh, a um, a guest host. I was a guest hosting um, with uh, on TCM with Ben Mankiewicz. I had a two-day tribute to George, and that w- that was great. I showed my films, and uh, it was a really good, it was a great way to show the Puppetoon movie. And uh, that afternoon, uh, the the chairman of Paramount was doing a uh, a talk with Ben on the Motion Picture Home. And uh, and I and I I wanted to get word to him that I was there and I was doing it and wanted to get reach, reach to him reach him so I could talk to him about the puppetoons, and I did, and it took about a year and a half after that I was reach, I reached him, and he let me have access to the films, and that is the most amazing part of the volume two and volume three is you 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 see for the first time in history, the true quality of the puppetoons from their original. Uh, three-strip successive color negatives, scanned directly, uh, digitized, and the quality is unsurpassed. It's, it's, it's unbelievably gorgeous in Technicolor. Uh, and so we w- was very lucky to get several of the ones for this set. Two of them are particularly notable because one of them features Bugs Bunny in the first time that Bugs was ever loaned out uh, by Warner Brothers to another studio, and there's a cameo in one of the subjects, Jasper Goes Hunting, and there's another subject where uh, Punchy and Judy, I mentioned the uh, the Fred Moore characters, A uh, Hat Full of Dreams, uh, is a story where um, Ju- uh, Punchy imagines himself through a magical hat and becomes Superman, and pal was able to get the rights from dc comics to use the superman image and superman uh you know inf- types of you know faster than a speeding bullet and flying in the air and wearing the superman costume and all of that so two of the films are very notable because they're the use of uh, of a, a franchise that was never 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 allowed before Superman was never used outside of the DC Comics and still hasn't been. And of course, those two are restored from the successive negatives. So they are absolutely impeccably gorgeous. It it really is staggering when you see the subjects. I personally, uh, I I, I still can't get over it. Uh, And even the Europeans, we did a a really terrific job. Uh, Steve Stanchfield with Thunderbean Animation helped with the um, restorations, did a great job. Uh, I had a fellow named Tim Romano working on it who lives in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, And uh, there were a lot of people that worked with Steve that helped restore some of these. There were a lot of people involved Uh, and there will be even more on the next one. And it's a lot of work, it's very tedious work. Uh, The good thing though is that the source material is excellent. you know we don't have material in general I would say some of the Europeans need a little more than others but in general the condition of the prints are really excellent uh, and certainly the successive negatives are so that makes a big difference we're dealing with we're very lucky that the material is even even exists frankly uh, to have the successive negatives for instance on cartoons is not a normal thing. I mean, not every studio preserved them. Yeah. And the fact that those successive negatives exist on the puppetoons um, is pretty remarkable.
0: Now, there are certain films that have racial stereotypes in them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for audiences today.
1: Well, it's, 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 it's a fact. I mean, there is racial stereotypes in some of these. and are not nearly as bad as others. Uh, but there was a character named Jasper that was in the films, uh, it's a very sweet character. Uh, I have a disclaimer at the beginning that is very clear that talks about this. Um, uh, when in the, in the it was a period. Of, it was a product of the period at the time. Uh, George uh, George, of course, came from Europe. He didn't really know any about, about any of this kind of stuff. He saw the black uh, black history as something that that uh, was very enriching. He sort of called it the Huckleberry Finn of American uh, folk culture. So from him, he was actually giving it great praise when he did it. He did it, but he was using stereotype. He was using the stereotypes that are known today. But the character is such a sweet character, and the stories are so fantastical that you kind of forget because you're, 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 you're uh, ex, uh, you exported to these other uh, fantasy ideas in the stories, and, and music is used. George hired all these great black music- musicians. He was multicultural in all his films. He used people from all over the world to work on them, and uh, the blacks most definitely, uh, musicians and uh, jazz artists. And so he uh, utilized a lot of multi-talent uh, actors, everyone. And so uh, I think at the end of the day, people don't really pay much attention to it. They're not noticing it too much because they're so enjoying them. They're so enamored by what they're seeing that that doesn't uh, creep in, and, and like I say, it's not nearly as bad as some of the racial stereotypes we see in so many other films. But uh, but that's just you know that's just one part. But that's only part of the story because he did so many others. They weren't the only things he did.
0: And it's only available directly from Puppetoon.net.
1: Yes, Puppetoon.net is where it is, and for now, anyway, and for as long as I can, I'm trying to recoup as much as I can so I can continue doing these, uh, there's not much money in it. It's just, I just, money goes right back into doing more pretty much. And I need to get as much as I possibly can. So I really appreciate if people would consider it. I think it, I think for a lot of people, it's a life changing, especially for anyone who loves animation, certainly animation students, people that are fascinated by art and, um, artistic, uh, Projects and and then people just love uh, movies, classic cinema, Uh, and uh, I I think uh, I think they'll find it uh, inspiring to see these things, and they're very entertaining, of course, very very entertaining film.
0: So, out of his total output, how much do the two volumes of Puppetoons represent?
1: Uh, I'd say there's probably uh, in the actual Puppetoon movie there's ten. Ten films, but then, but then in future releases I added films that were I could get. So maybe there's another ten or fifteen or twenty, and then in this there's about there's about uh, eighteen films here. Uh, but that, I bring in some of the Europeans, so there were say another uh, half and half. So this this set has say half Europeans, half Americans. So there's ten there. All told, I mean, all the puppet tunes, if you think European and America, you know, George probably did close to 100 puppet tunes. Uh, I would think you add them all up. Not all of them are available. Some have been lost. But uh, of America, there's, say, 40, 42 puppet tunes. And I probably released um, more than half of them easily. Uh, And I'd say for the next set, I probably have another 10 to do. And... uh, and that'll be take us up to about 30 32 34 35 and then the europeans probably all most of the known europeans have been released so um so it really yeah it really is quite something and there's new discoveries being made even as i speak even as of yesterday there's films that are being discovered even now that that weren't that that uh weren't known to exist that I'm finding out about so the next one could be even more exciting because there'll be things that uh, even even I had never seen before um, and uh, and that's happening every day paramount is helping me with additional ones so it's all very exciting um, I think uh, hope everybody has a chance to see it of rim, the, rhythm, as
2: play the, and the everybody's happy the, melody's grand where the
0: Played by the Hilly Billy Ban. Swing her to the left, swing her to the right. right. Then we dance the poker billy Now you let her
2: go, now you hold her tight. Good we ever do the karaoke. Hear the music on the violin. All over me, the mass play the turkey and stone. Everybody's happy, the melodies ran when the music played by the Hilly
0: Billy Ban The Puppeton Movie Volume two is available exclusively at puppetoon.net. There will be a link in the show post at nitrateville.com Thanks to my guests, Bruce Goldstein, Tommy Jose Stathis, and Arnold Leibovit. And to John Bankson. Theme music is by Kevin MacLeod. Never miss an episode, because you know how long it's going to take us to get through 8 million stories? Sheesh! So subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and we'll be back in a few weeks. Thanks.